Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Patrick, get in here. <clears throat> I'm standing right here, Your Vice Majesty. So you are. Any news of me out on the streets? Not that I am aware of, your royal second-in-command. Nothing in the scrolls, banners, broadsides, pieces of paper stuck to ravens, no mention of Associate Queen Kion Wolf, Deputy Warden of the Seven Kingdoms, Auxiliary Protector of the Realm, uh, Second Banana of the First Men, Vice Castellan of the Dreadfort on Clegane, no? I had not heard that last one, milady. I made it up. What else have I to do all day? No one knows I exist. Who is King Joffrey beheaded today? A documentary crew from the Stormlands, Your Vice Majesty. I need my own initiative, something more popular than the Dragon Corps testing standards. Those did not go over well. People threw excrement into the streets from the highest windows. You always bring that up. What does King Joffrey do with the heads he cuts off? Puts them on pikes, milady. How about if we composted them? That idea should come from my office, and it's very green, right? And we can get the schools involved. Compost the heads, make it part of food production. It's the circle of life. We need a cute name. Project Noggin? I love Project Noggin. Should we run this by King Joffrey? Oh, you know, he's so busy. And I really want this to come from me. What's the worst that could happen? Meanwhile, let's listen to the show about Hillary Clinton, Veep, and the great tournament everyone's watching. And now he's slated to star in the upcoming Elbridge Jerry biopic, Colin McEnroe. You know, when I first heard there was a TV series called Veep, I just assumed it was about Elbridge Jerry. I was shocked when it was not, because there's so much uh, tremendous real estate to be explored there. I mean, you even get your own creature named after you. Um, all right, so uh, let me tell you what's going to happen on the show today. In a little while, towards the end of the show, we are going to visit uh, both with uh, Steve Eater uh, from the uh, New York Times, uh, who's a reporter specializing kind of in NCAA issues, and Dama Moore from the Hartford Current, uh, because they're all down there in Texas where the, the basketball thing is happening. Uh, but here on The Scramble, uh, we always try to begin with what we call a super guest. Well, could we get a more super super guest than Frank Rich? Uh, we always ask the super guest to bring his own topics or her own topics. Frank Rich is writer-at-large for New York Magazine and executive producer of the aforementioned HBO series Veep, which started uh, season three last night. So uh, we're going to talk to Frank uh, about a bunch of things. Uh, we're going to start with his article in the current issue right now on the stands. Probably won't get it in your mailbox for a day or two uh, of New York Magazine. This is called Scandal Loves a Clinton. Uh, and uh, a little bit later, we'll talk about Veep. If we have time, we'll talk about the plight of Brendan Eich, a former head of Mo- Mozilla, and although I didn't really brief or prepare Frank for this, and we might have to say a word or two about Mickey Rooney. I'm guessing Frank Rich has something to say about Mickey Rooney. Uh, anyway, Frank Rich, welcome to the show. Great to talk to you again, Colin. It's great to talk to you as well. So uh, yeah. we're, we're going to be- begin with the uh, the Clinton article. Now, sure. the, the thesis of the of the Clinton article is it's kind of like 
The Blob, uh, the 1950s science fiction movie. I think the idea of The Blob was that every time you shot a missile or something into it, the blob got stronger. Um, and, and you're kind of making a comparable argument about the Clintons and, and about Hillary Clinton that if, in fact, Republican operatives try to revive, as they've already done, old for the most part, sexually based scandal accusations against the Clintons, it will in fact make them stronger rather than weaker. Elaborate. Absolutely. Well, as some may recall, those with long memories, I realize here in America we don't <laughs> often remember anything, but in the 1990s when the Clinton sex scandals broke, it kept the opposition, mainly Republicans, kept assuming that the Clintons would go away, Bill Clinton in particular in those days, uh, and then were stunned when over and over again, every time there was some bombshell development about uh, a sex scandal in particular, and particularly Monica Lewinsky, his poll numbers would go up and indeed reached uh, levels that have not been seen in years at the height of impeachment as he was being uh, put on trial essentially for lying about um, an illicit uh, uh, sex act. And what's fascinating to me this year is that, excuse me, um, as the idea of a Hillary Clinton uh, candidacy seems more and more likely to people, of course we don't know yet if she's running, but there seems to be actually no opposition within the Democratic Party to speak of, um, the Republicans, as you said, some of the operatives are already – putting it out there. Oh, we don't want to go back to Monica Lewinsky again. And uh, they don't seem to remember what happened last time, and it will happen again. Furthermore, what really complicates it for the Republicans now is this war on women idea that came about in the last election with all this talk about contraception and so-called legitimate rape. The whole anger about the Clintons over sex ends up being another war on women, or in this case, a war on one woman, Hillary Clinton, because they just can't help themselves. So if they bring Bill Clinton's sex life into the, uh, or his past sex life, into the, into the campaign, inevitably there'll be a misogynistic, sexist quality to it, as there was last time around. Hillary Clinton was often insulted uh, as a, really, an innocent bystander, and her husband's um, a sex scandal. Uh, and we'll see that happen again, and it will just backfire on the Republicans uh, even more so, I suspect. You know, uh, reading your article and then realizing that we were also going to be talking about Veep, I also wondered whether the Republicans quite understood the cultural moment they're in now, even at the level of pop culture. And and I think I, th I had several thoughts about this. One of them is that to, I don't really watch this show, but my significant other does. But my understanding of the entire point of the show, The Good Wife, is that one survives this horrible, very Clinton-esque looking sexual political scandal. And if one is the wronged woman in that scandal, one grows stronger from it. And one is al almost empowered to do more, you you know, and, and maybe even to push certain envelopes and, and cross certain lines because because you've grown from this and, and you can point to injustices directed to you uh, at the pa in the past and people are kind of happy to see you prosper. Um, go ahead. You I think that's exactly I think that's exactly right. I think, you know, <clears throat> that comes across clearly in The Good Wife. And I think that's what came across um, in the previous uh, Clinton era, even though um the conservatives couldn't believe it. There was a fascinating uh, panel 
some years back, uh, but um, around the time Hillary Clinton was running for Senate in New York at the AEI, the conservative think tank, and Lynn, Lynn Cheney said in that panel, I, what I really can't stand about Hillary Clinton is that she goes around as if she's in a happy marriage. Um, and so, first of all, the idea that anyone knows what goes on in anyone else's marriage is itself ludicrous. Um, but secondly, I think it played in, they, she couldn't understand how Hillary Clinton might be empowered by scandal, that she might have come to some reckoning in her personal life that was that that was positive out of a potentially horrible or, you know, difficult marital situation. And I, I think that's entirely true. And then you add in the current culture, which wasn't true so much last time, um, a, a culture that just moved so much further on, on women's issues as it has on other issues. And everything about the Republican Party seems so antediluvian. I mean, they can't even, you know, rally around fair pay laws for women or women uh, violence against women uh, uh, legislation um, to top it all off with sort of a, a, a you know, a, a demeaning attitude towards someone who's been the Secretary of State as well as a Senator and First Lady um, about her, her husband and about sex is just, uh, I think, going to be toxic. Um, just back to the AEI panel, there's sort of a strange irony, too, that these days, at least publicly, the Clintons get along a lot better than the Cheneys do. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, you know, and, and also in the case of Lynn Cheney, she, in essence, disowned the marriage of her own child. Um, so who is she to talk? Of course, none of that had happened. Yeah, that, uh, that, was, that was waiting for them in the future when she spoke. Yes, exactly. Well, you know, just sort of back to this whole question of how how women are perceived um, in, in political combat uh, and how what kind of Republican rhetoric gets directed at them. It does strike me that there are some differences between the perception of Hillary Clinton and the way other women are often talked about. And, you know, the, your article made me realize that one of the new tripwire words is emotional. Uh, so Bridget Kelly, who's a figure in the, the Bridgegate, uh, New Jersey, Chris Christie story, and as you pointed out in that report, she was explained by her emotions and her mm-hmm. subjective motivation and her state of mind and this whole idea that this prior uh, romantic relationship with one of the other participants had, had just unhorsed her and made her into this irrational, crazy, bridge-closing person. And we even saw it over the weekend uh, with the former CIA director saying that Dianne Feinstein had deep emotional feelings that may have, you know, may, mm. may turned her off towards torture, uh, <laughs> you know, as opposed to the rest of us who, who enjoy torture because we don't let our emotions get in the way. Right. Um, But, you know, for Hillary, of course, the struggle four years ago was to evince emotions, right? When she cried in New Hampshire, that was really – it was a huge plus for her because people needed to see that. Exactly. In fact, it's something that we use in the first season of Veep for our heroine to – when she needed um, uh, some sympathy of sort. Um, uh, Not that I'm saying that Hillary Clinton put it on. I I don't believe she did. I think she was – you know, who knows? But anyway – um, yeah, well, now Hillary Clinton, I think because of her period at state is, and also in some ways because of the overall lasting image of her 2008 campaign, the, you know, the 3 a.m. phone call and the, and the sort of the crying incident notwithstanding, the kind of, um, you know, I'll go into a Pennsylvania 
blue collar bar and knock back some beers that whole that whole image positioning has kind of um taken the emotional um component uh out of the, you're right out of the public image it's a very shrewd observation of course all this could turn on a dime yes things do change well you know another pop culture tv thought i had that yeah. was a, a nice bridge from from this to veep is reading your article is you, know, you take us back to the time when there were people people like rush limbaugh openly trafficking in the notion that for example hillary clinton and vince foster had an affair and then he was murdered to cover up this affair which by the way in terms of damage control seems like you know poor, would have been poor poor thinking anyway but yes. the, the people who believe that or, or who throw it out there are essentially trafficking also in the notion that we see in in things like House of Cards and Scandal, that there is this um, Washington where where there are horrible things that happen and then these highly competent fixers who are able to come along and clean up the mess. Whereas what I know about Washington, I mean, oddly enough, I mean, comedies are not supposed to be more realistic than dramas. But, I mean, the world of Veep, which is full of incompetent lickspittles and and, toadies and and people who are far, far overreaching their own abilities uh, in terms of their aspirations, seems like a much more gritty, realistic portrait of Washington. I think so. I've thought about it a lot because um, besides covering Washington, I grew up there. And as I discovered early on, um, Julia Louis-Dreyfus also grew up there, uh, which is something I didn't know until we started working together on this uh, three and a half years ago. And we both reflected a lot on why this is so much more accurate um, to us. And I think part of it is it's entirely written by Brits, and they have uh, kind of, they're, they're political junkies. You know, they read Robert Caro's books on Johnson. They read Politico. They they know what's going on, but they're they're watching it generally from London, except when we're in Baltimore uh, shooting the show. And um, they have an objectivity and a lack of sentimentality about it, and and so they kind of see it in a way that somehow. It's hard to do, you know. House of Cards, even um, leaving aside, you know, the murder and, and, and the murderous aspects and the kind of really, you know, sort of um, uh, the criminal aspects, um, really also has a somewhat romantic view of Washington. It's it's not the West Wing, which had a very romantic view, but it's still it's kind of glossy. It's kind of glamorous, even if horrible things are happening. One of the first things Armando Yanucci, the creator of Veep. Uh, uh, did at the very beginning before we shot anything was he he sent a um, memo to the production designers and he said, look, this should not look like you know an American president or movies like that. It should look the way it really is. Is detritus and garbage all around. The chairs don't match the desk. The offices are are you know filthy. Um, he said that you know everyone dresses uh, ten years behind. New York in terms of fashion, except for one character, Dan Egan, the Reed Scott sort of go-getter in the office. He's he's uh, three years ahead of everyone else in fashion, which means he's seven years behind New York. And in the show itself, I think this is really true. And having grown up around these people, the permanent sort of bureaucracy of federal government, they were you know the, their par- the kids I went to school. Those these were their parents. It's it's about the most minor p- 
power plays. It's it's about getting ahead. Uh, we had a, a, a joke in the pilot that ended up on the cutting room floor where it really had people fighting over an outlet to recharge a cell phone. Uh, and who was closer to the outlet became a power grab in the vice president's office. That's really – that's the permanent way of Washington – and we go, may go through periods of particularly uh, explosive dysfunction, as we have in recent years. But this kind of uh, shambling incompetence and, and, you know, people stabbing each other in the back and fighting over the most minor uh, details to, for their own self-aggrandizement is unfortunately the way of the world down there. And we've, we've been struck by how many actual Washington workers, people in the federal government, in congressional offices, or in, for that matter, the West Wing, uh, feel that our show is gets it. I mean, I find myself thinking a lot about Veep versus reality and, and ways in which something like Veep can help you understand reality, including, I, I still don't understand this, and, and I, this tracks us back towards Hillary. It's another kind of bridge between sure. the two thing, things. But um, I, I've never quite exactly understood what Huma Abedin, the wife of uh, Anthony Weiner, does for Hillary Clinton. But my my sense in just reading about it and being told about it and asking questions about it is for much of her time there, although she's often d- d- often portrayed as this incredibly hyper-competent, super cerebral kind of person, which she may very well be. Right. But her job is basically for most of the time been body man, right? She's been yes, like Tony Hale. She's Tony Hale. She, yeah, she's Gary. Yeah. In our show, yes. To, you know, we're of course we're speculating here, and I'm sure she obviously she's a, a, a she's a smarter than Gary, competent person. But she, yeah. but no, it's about being a sycophant and about the, making sure that the right document is in in her boss's hands, or in Gary's case, in our show, you're the right. Uh, uh, Corral or whatever it is in any given moment, and it's true. And, and by the way, we've had this experience. Every member of the cast has, and everyone on the show, where if you're in a Washington setting and you're meeting people, you're meeting people from the Hill. They'll, they'll, with absolutely without any embarrassment, they'll say, "Oh, I'm the Jonah in my office, and <laughs> and she's the Amy, and he's the Gary." And indeed, uh, we at the end of the the uh, uh, first season, we had a. Um, uh, a rap party in Baltimore. We shoot, as does House of Cards, we shoot in Baltimore for various reasons with exteriors in Washington. And a, a prominent politician who should remain nameless uh, decided to, to come to the rap party. And he was with a couple of aides, and we're howling because they're behaving exactly like our characters. Oh, is, do you, would you like another beer? And, you know, uh, please stand this way, you know, because the camera's coming at you this way. It was, it, it's, it's, you know, it's, you can't make this stuff up, really. You know, I think we're also at the point of what Brooke Brethard, the cartoonist, uh, what's referred to as the, the difficulty of successfully offending anybody. Uh, because <laughs> yes. I, I, right when the series started, I ran into a, I was at a wedding and I was at a wedding with a guy who was, he was just coming off a stint as a body man for a former vice president. And he said, oh no, that's pretty much the way it is. That's why we like it so much. <laughs> yes. They're not offended by it. I don't I don't know if you've succeeded in offending anybody. I don't, I don't think we, you know, I, that's a very good point. I'm not sure. We, well, it's interesting. The very first season, um, a, a couple of uh, uh, journalists or reviewers, but Washington journalists who wrote about the show, who remain nameless, like Eleanor Cliff, for instance, uh, <laughs> wrote aggrieved pieces uh, a, 
about how cynical the show was and there's nothing you know this is this is not the way it really works that's so a few people were offended at the beginning but then i think they threw in the towel and maybe they started to laugh and indeed i don't think we're offending people not even with the language of the show which is um we can't use here but but which is uh, by the standards even of perhaps cable television um quite uh, uh quite something in terms of scatology um, just one last thing before we take a break here, and, and just to swing back to the article Scandal Loves the Clinton, which will appear in your current issue of New York Magazine. We're talking to Frank Rich, uh, the writer at large, uh, editor at large for New York Magazine, who, who wrote it, and executive producer of Veep. Um, you know, there's one phrase in there that I think is, um, you could do an entire separate essay about this. You, you refer to the, cause I, and I'm not sure ex- it, whether I agree with it or not, but I'm really intrigued by it. You say that the Clintons now are, are sort of re- uh, regarded as national grandparents. You know, one of them is going to be about 68, 69, the other one's going to be about 70, uh, as the political season unfolds. And, you know, I wonder whether that's true just because they also are, they so epitomize the baby boom generation. And the entire ethos of the baby boom generation, as far as I can tell, as a member of it, is one is an adolescent until about five minutes before one dies. Well, so as as a fellow member of the generation, uh, I I know where you're coming from. And and you may be right. I think, though, it won't be the Clintons' generation won't be our generation that will be looking at them this way. It'll be, I hate to say this, so many people younger than us <laughs> who are, who are going to vote, some of whom, of course, I did the math, some of whom would not have been born at the time the Lewinsky scandal broke, incredibly enough, in 2016. I think I, I really meant it more towards yeah. them. Well, that not, makes sense, not, yeah. Not our fading, yeah. sad, aging, <laughs> boomer generation. All right, so we're going to take a quick break here. we come back, we'll have a little bit more uh, of time with Frank Rich, which is great. So uh, we'll be back. Hillary Clinton, will you go to the prom with me? To the prom with me, to the prom with Hillary Clinton. Will you go, will you go, will you go? Will you go to the prom with me? All right, we're back. We've got about five more minutes here, here with Frank Rich before he has to go. So uh, we'll speed uh, read through two quick topics here. One, one of them is Brendan Eich. Uh, he is the, uh, was the CEO of Mozilla. It turned out that uh, a few years ago, in 2008, uh, he'd given $1,000 to an anti-gay marriage campaign, part of Proposition 8, uh, and uh, didn't seem to matter while he was chief technical officer of Mozilla. When he became CEO, though, everything changed, and he was forced out by, uh, as Slate Magazine reported, a combination of internal Unrest and public condemnation. Uh, Frank Rich, I've been reading all kinds of things about this, uh, ranging from Frank Bruni to to Andrew Sullivan, and I feel right now I'm committing the pundit's sin of not really exactly knowing 100% where I come down uh, on one side of the line or the other. It's a little bit complicated for me. Where are you on this? Yeah, I've been been reading what you have and, and also been thinking about it, and I guess I have come to a position, and my feeling is that um, uh, if it, it's a little murky, as I understand it, whether he was pushed or left on his own, but the but the fact is that if his uh, doing this, giving a thousand dollars to Proposition Eight, uh, uh, made it untenable for him to be a successful CEO with his workforce at Mozilla or with the outside world Mozilla has to deal with as a very prominent, obviously, a digital internet operation, um, he couldn't go on. 
I do think I know that Andrew Sullivan and some others have made a big point about this is, you know, he's entitled to free free speech, and of course he is. And um, I do I do think though there is a distinction between say having an a you can be against same sex marriage. Uh, and not necessarily be a bigot, I guess. And you can you can have an opinion about it, um, which is heartfelt that for religious reasons or other reasons, um, you're against it. There are, you know, although, of course, Americans are by the droves changing in mm. this, uh, you know, every day. What makes this, uh, I think, unsavory and and not um, uh, quite as simple as that is he gave a thousand bucks to a truly ugly uh, and really homophobic uh, campaign uh, against, uh, it wasn't just against same-sex marriage, the Proposition 8 uh, campaign that it actually played out in California was really um, about bigotry. It was presenting gay people in general as dangerous to society, dangerous to children and other families in particular, and he gave money to finance that. And that's quite different from just saying, um, I'm against same-sex marriage for w- for whatever reason. But tell me if you disagree. That's sort of where I've come down on it. Yeah, I mean, I, I lean that way. I'm just sort of in the process of, I mean, obviously, as you say, there have been just massive changes telescoped into this tiny period of time that I, I would, never would have guessed. And I'm, right. I'm gratified by these changes. And I guess I'm unsure about how quickly... I or anybody else has has a right to expect the rest of the world to catch up and change and understand. But the point you make that the tenor uh, of the campaign he supported, uh, you know, I mean, I, I even look at it, you know, do I have to how how outraged do I have to be at any Mormon I meet? You know, I want to be able to think OK thoughts about certain Mormons. anyway. Right. Um, I, I think that's fair. And by the way, and I would agree with agree with you there, except the Mormon church, of course, was also I think owes an apology um, for the fact that it poured a ton of money into that uh, that same ugly campaign. Yep. In fact, they were, I think, the single biggest uh, through various means uh, economic sponsors of it, financial backers of it. Um, one thing about this guy is that that he never really said anything publicly about it. Right. I don't know why he didn't. Why didn't he say, "This is my heartfelt opinion"? Maybe that. That campaign was over the top, and looking back in retrospect, I shouldn't have helped, you know, underwrite commercials that presented gay people as, you know, horror movie figures. But for whatever reason, and I, and I, I don't know if I know the answer. Maybe you've read something I haven't on this. I don't. No, I don't. Didn't. I even Selena's team could have come up with something for him to say. I think, it, it, exactly, it would have compounded the problem, but at least they would have come up with something. Okay, so Frank Rich, two minutes left for you. Uh, sure. Mickey, Ritchie, Mickey Rooney died at the age of ninety-three. Uh, had a great run. He's sort of the he was one of the last remaining bridges to like everything. You know, I mean, two real comedies and vaudeville and silent movies and uh, and but but I don't, what jumps into your mind? Well, you know, I, I recommend to everyone, there's no one who writes better about old Hollywood than Algene Harmitz, the retired New York Times Hollywood reporter who did contribute the obituary that the Times has up today about Mickey Rooney. And there's so much that's poignant about it. I mean, this guy was incredibly self-destructive, had a crazy uh, personal life in terms of his uh, marital history, in terms of, you know, squandering money uh, and gambling and 
and all sorts of other things and and did everything in show business i mean he was successful in movies television broadway uh, near the end of his career was still working uh and was nuts obviously um but it's just an amazing story it's it's almost a dickensian story and one detail that i didn't know uh that i read in in Algin's obit is that I, I knew he was from a show business family, and his his father was a, a sort of second tier vaudevillian, and his mother was like a burlesque or vaudeville chorus girl, and they split up when he was very very young, and they eat, they had forty dollars between them, and each got twenty dollars. That's the kind of poverty and and broken home he was uh, uh, born into, and how this guy survived in '93 and with just terrible setbacks. Um, some of them self-perpetuated, to be sure, and um, and did some fantastic work. I mean, you know, some some of his work, both as a child, as a child, as an adolescent in the Judy Garland movies, as an adult, and as a more serious actor, as a clown on Broadway, is some of the best work American pop culture has ever seen, and holds up completely and. To, contrast that with the life that produced it well i wish uh, i wish someone would write a real biography of him he, he wrote his own autobiography that was not i don't think entirely honest or complete uh, over 20 years ago with the title life is too short right exactly and i have to say watching uh, the battle uh, having just watched the battle between the Colbert Report and activist Suey Park, I keep thinking, wow. I, th- I keep thinking about Breakfast in, at Tiffany's, which really is an inappropriate Asian stereotype character. Oh, uh, no, talk totally about inappropriate. How time, talk about how times change. Times change, but he did it. He threw himself into anything. Yes, exactly. you know, I'm sure he probably did blackface at some point in his career. There's nothing he didn't do. Uh, it's just uh, uh, it's it's just an amazing um, uh, amazing story. Frank Rich, so great to talk to you. Uh, you we love your work in New York Magazine, well, of course. And well, great beat. to talk to you always, Colin. All right. Uh, we'll talk again soon. Thanks. Bye. All right. We'll take a break. We'll be back after this. What a good man you're getting in me. I'm no Elker Mason or Woodman who gets home at three. The girls who see me grow soft and dreamy, but I'm a gander who won't philander. Oh, could you use me? Cause I certainly could use you. I didn't find last night's episode particularly funny. The one where Millard Fillmore helps President Zachary Taylor keep William Seward off the cabinet although it's possible I was watching the wrong Veep series. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me, with help from our intern Skylar Magnoli. Greg Hill appeared in the introduction and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. Katie Talarski is our executive producer. The part of Bill Curry was played by Tony Hale. For show pages, articles, and videos of the Faith Middleton Show staff performing musical numbers from Babes on Broadway, visit our website, WNPR.org. On tomorrow's show, our salute to spite. And now, back to Colin. Yeah, before we plunge into this segment, too, I want to remind you, because we're going to be talking about sports, and uh, by Wednesday, all of the college basketball excitement will be over, but you'll want to sustain it somehow. So you'll come to Watkinson School at 7 p.m. 
uh, where uh, Jeff Jacobs uh, from the Hartford Current and a bunch of other panelists, uh, including Reggie Hatchett, uh, the coach of Weaver, uh, somebody from the Corey Stringer Institute, uh, and also someone with a background in youth sports. Uh, We're all going to have a conversation there uh, as part of the Freshly Squeezed series at Watkinson School about sort of what kinds of messages about sports are sent from the highest levels of sports uh, down right down to the playing fields that uh, that that youth competitors play on um, and so if you have questions if you're a parent of somebody playing youth sports if you feel like the sport that you love has kind of gotten off track somehow uh, it'll be a great place for you to come we'd love to have you there uh, and so please call Watkinson School or go on their website watkinson.org to get your tickets or we do need to give you a ticket or get you, get a ticket into your hands before so that you can come. There's a small charge that actually goes to support three local nonprofits. So join us for that, 7 p.m. Wednesday night. All right, so what is everybody talking about in Connecticut? Obviously, uh, the NCAA tournament. We've got uh, two uh, teams, two UConn teams competing for championships. Uh, we're going to spend a little bit of time talking in particular about the men's uh, tournament. Joining in, us in just a second is Dom Amore, a colleague of Jeff, Jeff Jacobs's and one of uh, the people contributing fine coverage of the tournament uh, and of the UConn Huskies to the for current. We're going to start with Steve Eater from the New York Times. Uh, he writes about sort of issues affecting NCAA athletes and also had a great read this morning about how an institution like the University of Connecticut takes a moment like this where uh, donors are all flocking down from Connecticut down to Texas uh, and their brains are bathed in the endorphins uh, that come with basketball success and, and are therefore even more likely to open up their wallets. So, Steve Eater, can we just start there? The article that you you wrote was very interesting, talking about uh, President Susan Herbst and the rest of her team and the way in which they really, this party that's going on, this basketball-themed party going on down there, can be really good in terms of filling the coffers of the university. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, thanks for having me. I was uh, I spent some time on Saturday the, uh, when the men's uh, basketball team was getting ready to play and all through the through the Final Four game. Um, you know, sort of seeing the president of, of Connecticut, uh, Susan Herbst, um, in in action, and uh, so some of that involved um, you know interaction with uh, with donors, with fans, with alums, and uh, you know it was an interesting look. I mean, they, this, the schools go out of their way when um, they're participating in an event like this to really take advantage of it. You know that means you know providing opportunities for you know for donors to get on the flights, to get good seats, to get to stay at the uh, at the hotel, which provides an audience with um, with key people from the university to talk to them about donations. And, and it is. Um, it's hard, It's easier to ask somebody for money when they're incredibly happy, uh, and people tend to get very happy around basketball success like this. Uh, and so that the idea of providing even more money, I think, it's. I mean, people are almost neurologically wired to do that in a situation like this. Yeah, and you see this all over the country. Um, you know, other schools will will do will do the same. This is you know when. Connecticut's men's team won on Saturday night. I mean, immediately it's an opportunity where you've got two more days of being in a, you know, a confined space with uh, very, very happy UConn supporters. Uh, so two more days of, of work for um, some of the executives over at the university to, to talk with these folks about what they might be willing to donate and what projects they have going on. And they're feeling good about the school right now, certainly. Now, this is this moment is a moment where a lot of the issues that you cover as part of your beat all kind of bubble up at once. Uh, and you've got Mark Emmert, who's the uh, president of the NCAA, and I might add a former chancellor uh, of the University of Connecticut, who's kind of on the spot about a lot of this stuff, but also trying to, to, to talk uh, 
uh, constructively about it, ranging from this nascent and really kind of surprising unionization movement to the whole question of um, of one and done players, players who come in and just play for one year and go into the NBA, which is very much the case with uh, with Kentucky. So maybe we just take a couple of those things. The, the union thing has gotten really interesting, right? It's it's not just the Northwestern football team anymore. It's really an entire class of college athletes who seem eager to talk about this one way or another. It's a huge topic. Um, the union decision, you know, so far in terms of, you know, the nuts and bolts of this thing is that a, you know, a regional director of the NLRB said the Northwestern football team uh, at a private school could could proceed with uh, trying to get a union in place, that they were actually employees as opposed to the student-athlete term. Um, it's a narrow decision that has large ramifications. There's still a long way to go in terms of appeals and all that, but it's sort of provided this moment for renewed discussion. I mean, we've been talking about lawsuits against the NCAA and the conferences for quite some time, you know, but here at the moment where you're sort of seeing students um, and, and recent former students outlining the kinds of things that they want to see changed um, at the NCAA level to, um, you know, to, to accommodate today's, uh, you know, athletes. This is Steve Eater with the New York Times. He's with us. I want to add to this conversation Dom Amore. Uh, Dom spends a lot of time alongside these athletes. Uh, Dom Amore from the Hartford Current, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks, Colin. Thanks for having me. You know, and I was reading in the Connecticut Mirror today that Shabazz Napier, who, of course, is the star guard for the University okay. of Connecticut, uh, had told reporters that, that he understands the unionization movement at Northwestern uh, and that he sometimes has to go to bed starving because he can't afford food. Uh, I mean, we really sort of think of college athletes, especially big stars like Shabazz Napier, as these cosseted people whose uh, every whim is uh, there's a rush to grant it. Uh, so it's kind of striking to hear him say this. Is Are you here? Hearing UConn basketball players in general talk in maybe a slightly different way about these issues? Well, not, not different from other schools, uh, Colin. I mean, Shabazz has, has said that numerous times uh, through the years. In fact, he, I know he, he said it uh, quite a bit during Ryan Boltwright's issues with the NCAA that, uh, you know, the, you know, that the NCAA could be a little bit too rigid with some of the rules that, that it has. And, you know, the, the thing you have to realize is that. Um, the athletes come to schools, but you know many of them, you know, come from you know underprivileged backgrounds, and you know their, their tuitions covered, and 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 their expenses are covered, but you know their, their main living expenses, you know, are not, and so they don't actually have money, you know, in their pocket, and that that that's where, you know, I think so, I, I think there's no easy way around it because once you you go down the route of paying athletes a stipend, then you could actually find you know schools bidding against each other. Uh, with the stipend for, for as part of the recruiting process, it's got to be it's got to be governed in, in, in common sense ways. But I do think that some things have to change, and certainly, uh, you know, whether a, a, a union in the same sense of of unions as we know it is the answer, or some type of organization that that stands up for the rights of the athletes, I think it. I think it's an idea whose time may have come. Well, you know, Steve Eater from the New York Times, to that point, I mean, one of the things we hear Mark Emmert saying uh, is, first of all, a little bit, I mean, I don't understand these issues all that well. It's a little bit surprising to me to hear the NCAA president talking about a plan that would almost make the NCAA less relevant than it is now. But he seems to be talking about loosening things up and giving athletic conferences more control over their own destiny. But to Dom's point, doesn't that set up a situation where if, in fact, the the rules and, and, and the sort of the, the built-in compensation, if we can even use that word, uh, if, if it's better at the Big Ten than the, 
and in you know the AAC, uh, don't you also then set up this this the kind of thing that Dom's talking about, but at least directed at conferences? Why would I go play in one conference if you know if another conference has a, a better deal for me? Well, sure. I mean, that's where that's where this issue is going to you know, start to play out. Um, it sounds like in the next few weeks, and then and, the, and then months down the road here. Um, you know, the, the issue that we're all discussing is, is that there's a plan right now that's being worked on um, at the NCAA level, and you know, which is hundreds and hundreds of members. You know, some big wealthy types of schools, some not so much. Um, and the idea that's being put forth is to let what they call the five um, well-resourced uh, conferences sort of have some ability to say this is either some you know, quality of life things we'd like to be able to do for our um, athletes, and some of that could involve it could involve a stipend, it could involve health care things, it could involve um, limited practice time. There's some different things, but it give them what they kept using the word autonomy yesterday. Um, and but yeah, I mean you're going to see it, as that goes forward. Um, there's a recognition I think at the NCAA level, certainly at, uh, from Emmert and some of the other. Uh, leaders that there needs to be some sort of change uh, but the issue that you're identifying is something that people are also talking about that okay we well, have these what if you're not in these five conferences how does that work for you um how would it work for a school like connecticut which would be on the outside of that um and we may talk to dom a little bit about that whole question of connecticut's conference position going forward in, in just a second but steve eater while we have you um one last area i wanted to get into with you because you've been writing about it a lot and I, I guess i didn't it didn't even occur to me until i read your article that even the ladder that they climb up on to cut down the nets at these things is a product placement ladder with a specific ladder name that i should go want to go out and buy this step ladder because i just uh, subconsciously remember seeing it somewhere that the there's so much money saturating this process. And so that's sort of the other thing. I mean, it's kind of part of the conversation that we're having right now about unionization, but just, you know, all these lawsuits that are that are making their way through the court right now about athletes, even athletes who aren't in college anymore, still benefiting from the commercialization and the use of their images. Yeah, I mean, the issues you're bringing up um, that were in the story that we did the other day, I mean, it, you know, it's uh, it's nothing new that these this conferences has a lot of commercial sponsors, corporate sponsors. It's you know very visible in the professional leagues. It's visible at the Olympics, um, and it's nothing new to this tournament uh, for you know this year. But I think the reason it's being discussed and people are pointing out the Powerade cups and things like that is because of all these other issues that are in the backdrop right now: the lawsuits, the union effort. There's a real sensitivity to this, so it, it's kind of created a moment where. You know, we're, we're looking at these things and saying, okay, there's all this commercialization here, and what does that mean? What does that say about where this conference is and what what you know should happen? What should be happening as it relates to these athletes and potential ways of of including them in that? All right, Steve Eater, great coverage. We've really been enjoying it. Thank you so much for joining us today. And uh, people should jump on the New York Times website and read back three or four articles because all these things are are going to come to a head in the weeks ahead. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. All right. And we're going to uh, turn over to Dom Amore, who's been covering the team for uh, for the Hartford Current. So, Dom Amore, we, let's talk storylines for a second here. I mean, it, 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 we've had sort of a, a David versus Goliath storyline for the UConn team with a lot of the teams that they've played. They've been higher seeded. The expectations have been bigger. Uh, now they're playing for a championship uh, against Kentucky. It's a seven seed playing an eight seed. I mean, how does the storyline play out now? Is there a clear favorite? Well, I think Kentucky is, again, the clear favorite, and the reason they are is because they're not your typical uh, number eight seed. They 
were actually the top-ranked team in the country before the season started because of the, uh, the much-heralded freshman class that they brought in. It's one of the most highly regarded recruiting classes ever. Uh, but, you know, as is part of the process of, of, of operating that way, they struggled during the regular season. They struggled to find uh, their inexperience. Uh, they lost uh, a, lot, a lot more games than people thought, and when they went into the tournament, they were a number eight seed. But now, you know, they're really not freshmen anymore. They have a whole season behind them. They have a lot of experience. They're getting better uh, before, really before our eyes as you watch them. And so really, probably more so than UConn because it's an, it's an experienced team that, that is what it is, you know, Kentucky is really a much, much different team than it was a month ago. So for most people, we consider them the, the clear favorite strictly on, on the raw talent that they have. You know, um, in terms of storyline also, as you look at UConn, it really is like what a difference a day makes. It's uh, UConn has gone from having a pretty negative storyline a season or two ago and, and obviously inability to complete in postseason play because of academic problems, low graduation rate, blah, blah, blah. We, we know the whole thing. They've gone from that almost overnight to, in this storyline, the school that has the seniors who stayed the whole way, people like Shabazz Napier who are going to graduate, uh, in, as opposed to uh, Kentucky, which has a pretty cynical-looking one-and-done approach. A lot of these freshmen are going to jump from here to the NBA. It's pretty pretty startling that UConn, UConn's in the position it is in terms of having kind of a high moral ground. Yeah, it's it's almost like you know in baseball, the best way to look like the good guys is probably to play the Yankees, right? And <laughs> and it's kind of like that when you're playing Kentucky. Uh, yeah, you know, I think UConn was in the process of of, of getting its act together uh, on this front, a lot of its fronts, a few years ago. Uh, but uh, the way the NCAA works and the way the process works, uh, you know, and 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 I'm not sure that there's any other way that it can work. Uh, you know, you're going to be, you're going to see the results of the preceding classes. I mean, I mean, you can't necessarily look at the present. You have to look at the four or five year rolling average, and, and to do that, you have to go back four or five and six years. So, you know, their academic numbers were low, their graduation rate was low, but that reflects really classes that began nine or ten years ago and either graduated or didn't graduate four or five years ago. Uh, so, so this class is an outstanding class in the sense that all four of the seniors are going to graduate on time. Uh, one of them is a grad student who transferred in, but Shabazz Nature and Niels Kapai, Tyler Olander, they all played the four years and they're going to graduate on time. And, and even the, the juniors on this team, if they do choose to leave a year early, they, they, they are well on the way to, they're ahead of schedule. So it would be a, a relatively easy process for them to, to complete their degree if they wanted to. Uh, but, you know, it, it's a lot of it's the system, a lot of it's the way it works, that Kentucky's able to get these one-and-done players in, but as long as they complete that spring semester and then sign a pro contract, it doesn't count against their APR score, the way that system works. They kind of circumvent the system a little bit. So there's a little bit of an illusion there, you're right. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, Kentucky, the way they operate, does leave a bad taste in a lot of people's mouths. There's no question about that. Uh, and, and it puts UConn in a, you know, comparatively speaking, in a favorable light. But I, I think also UConn is, is, has, you know, Kevin Ollie has brought extraordinary stability uh, and has done a, a tremendous job replacing the guy that he replaced, Jim Calhoun. And, and I think that also, you know, makes them kind of an easy team for, for people to root for. 
I, I agree. I, I'm, I've gradually fallen in love with them, and, and these two senior guards, Boatwright and Napier, and, uh, you know, when you watch it on television, the camera pans up to their moms. I assume this is the story of two uh, single mothers who've, who've raised uh, two very mature young guys who are really uh, putting on a great show right now for their university, and I, I kind of like that, too. I think it's sort of a kind of a, a heartwarming story. Um, just real quickly, Dom, um, how do you think we match up tonight? Uh, well, I, I think I'm true picking against UConn. I mean, <laughs> I, I didn't think they were going to beat Michigan State. I didn't think they would beat uh, Florida. So I, I'm, I'm true with that. Uh, you know, I, I think that, uh, you know, Kentucky, although they've played extremely well, they are still freshmen. And I think the possibility that UConn will throw some things at them that they have not seen before is very great. And I think you may, you may find themselves turning the ball over quite a bit. So I, I like UConn in this matchup. I mean, I, I think, uh, you know, Kentucky probably has much more uh, raw talent, size, speed, skill. But I think, uh, you know, UConn may throw a few things at them that they haven't seen before and, and may be able to take control of the game by doing that. Yeah, I, I after the Florida game, really, um, and, and seeing how well UConn adjusted and, and how you, well UConn took advantage of adjustments that Florida made, you really you've got to like it. I I'm sure a lot of UConn fans would have rather played Wisconsin because there's something about this Kentucky team because they're so young and so physically gifted. You yeah. do get the feeling that if they get hot, particularly from the threes, they may be really hard to stop, even if you're playing good defense. Yeah, I mean, really, you know, Kentucky probably plays the style that UConn would rather play. I think UConn would rather play a more wide-open, uh, up-and-down-the-floor, full-court game. That's what Kentucky can do, but Kentucky may have the athletes to actually beat UConn at that game, whereas other, other teams like Michigan State or what Wisconsin would have done probably try to trap UConn into a slower half-court game, which is not really UConn's bag. So true, I, think, true. I, I, think, I think the game is going to be played to the pace that UConn would like, but it's, going to be, but it's also the pace that Kentucky would like. Exactly. Well, uh, Dom Amore, in a few hours, we'll know. Uh, until then, the suspense builds. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks to Betsy Kaplan and Kyone Wolf, who helped out with today's show. Our intern, Skylar Magnoli, will be back tomorrow with our salute to spite. And don't forget about Watkinson on Wednesday night. I'm Kyone Wolf, and my vice presidential Final Four bracket was totally wrong. I had Millard Fillmore beats Walter Mondale, and Aaron Burr beats George Clinton. The musician, not the vice president.